morning everybody and welcome to your shot of leadership inspiration from uh, alembic strategy um in this um strategy cafe we're going to be talking to uh victor aletha uh who uh, has had a fascinating career as um borough commander and then prior to that as a police officer in various different parts of the police force uh, and is currently an amazing role, really interesting role um, in his retirement around reducing uh, violence. So we're going to have a chance to talk about some of the real highlights of his career and the leadership challenges he faced then. Uh, and then towards the back of the webinar, we'll be just chatting about his current role in influencing reductions in, in street crime of one sort or another. So fascinating discussion ahead. Um, welcome to the session today. I hope you really enjoy it. If you like it, you'll find the podcast version of this uh, on um, iTunes. It's also on SoundCloud. And if you look for Alembic Strategy and Strategy Cafe on YouTube, you can also see past recorded versions of these. Um, there's loads on there and there's a really interesting uh, collection of speakers that we've had over the years, a really wide ranging leadership in all sorts of different roles from public and private sector and um, and politics, etc. So uh, very interesting and it's worthwhile digging in. Um, but let's get going with the, today's webinar. So um, good morning, Victor. Thank you very much for being online. Tell us tell us just a little bit about you. Good morning, Nick. Uh, thank you for inviting me to take part in this. Um, yeah, so I uh, served 35 years as a police officer i joined surrey police back in 82 um straight from university um in actual fact one of the well the first black person to join surrey police which was um interesting in many ways and hopefully we get to talk about some of the reasons why uh, i served in surrey for about eight years and then moved to the city of london police um and, and essentially for a different policing experience and a different policing challenge because the city specialised in fraud investigation, which very few other forces did. Um, whilst in the city, I spent three years in the Home Office um, working on policy for stop and search with police forces across the country, advising ministers and um, looking at ways of actually improving stop and search so it didn't create the type of anxiety that it tends to do too often with different communities. Um, from the Home Office, I moved to the Mesbron Police on promotion in 2005 as a superintendent. Uh, I worked in Southwark, which was a fantastic place to work. Um, I worked in the Stop and Search team, led the Stop and Search for a couple of years, did some policy work, working directly to a couple of commissioners. Um, and then uh, I got promoted in 2011. I had two Borough Commander postings, first in Bexley, and then in Haringey a year after the rights in 2011. Um, after Haringey, I headed the diversity unit for the Met for about 18 months and retired in 2017. Uh, and since retirement, I've worked with civil society in Sweden, worked with um, police officers from Sao Paulo have come over to the UK. I've visited Chicago to look at their violence reduction program. Um, and I'm doing a number of charity work. so. Retirement has been quite busy. Yeah, good. Yeah, good. I'm glad. Uh, um, uh, it sounds like we need you. So <laughs> amazing. So um, what an what an incredible career. Um, so uh, maybe just uh, give us a few minutes just on on your your background. So you know, starting out, I think when we were chatting, you told us you ended up on the picket lines uh, with uh, with with Arthur. So tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, it was um, eighty two. It was a 
great time to join the police service because he was going through a uh, a number of changes and some of the things that the police was trying to do then i think they're still trying to do now it's actually just um for them improve their reputation and they were doing a number of initiatives such as recruiting graduates uh, and recruiting um people from black and asian background and um and i found policing really exciting after studying biochemistry i thought it's something i'd like to do but 82 you just had the riots in 81 around the country you know brixton st paul manchester so there was a bit of a tension in the air between police services and certain communities um and it was going through that transition and i joined and and i guess i found it really exciting and and really surprising and some of the things that surprised me about policing was the repetitive and routine nature of the things you did on a day-to-day basis you know um when you look through the adverts you expected lots of excitement you know in police cars chasing villains and everything else but the reality was slightly different um is a lot more complex than that and it's a lot more routine so that surprised me uh, and the things that excited me was 82 the, the riots had just sorry the um, minor strike had just started and as a probationer i never expected to get involved in it because i wasn't public order trained but the whole process took longer than it ought to have done so forces decided to send probationary officers and i went to um the minor strike for about a year um and it was just an incredible experience and as you can see from the photographs there um it was a really grueling process um okay. both in terms of policing but also in terms of compassion because you know we were going to these pits there were you know miners who were looking at saving their jobs they were really struggling they were looking to the future in terms of how they're going to be able to actually cope and you know provide for their families and we were stuck in the middle really we were trying to maintain order but we're seen as a as almost as an invading army in certain cases doing the work of the government with which you know the miners were against so we were stuck in a difficult place and and for me personally uh, there were very few black officers in the police service at the time and you know i stuck out like a sore thumb and um and, and i was you know uh, attracted to some of the anger that some of the miners felt because you know not only can you vent your anger at a police officer but you can vent it at someone who looks different from the vast majority um so it was a focal point but it, it was a is a massive learning experience and it and it helped me build resilience and, and the ability to stay calm and cope with situations that were difficult did you did you suffer um being targeted i'm guessing you got quite a lot of abuse but did you suffer and and what did you do how did you how did you build your resilience uh well i mean there, there was uh there was verbal shouting and everything else from uh the miners you expect i mean they, they were screaming at the police because they were angry at the right. police and, and and i was there and i looked different so you know occasionally they, they targeted at me but it's it just having just remembering that it wasn't anything personal you know they didn't know me as victor alisa you know i was a police officer in a uniform and they were angry at what was happening to them and mm. what they saw as the police um con continuing to try and do something to them that they didn't like excuse me for a minute so i guess the way, the way of coping is actually just um just understanding that it wasn't personal and you had a job to do and you just remain professional and, and look and i had friends who 
Yes. You know, at the end of a grueling day, you all got together, you relaxed, had a few beers and talked about the things that you went through. So again, that was hugely important, having right. colleagues That's to nice. talk to afterwards. Yeah, actually having great team spirit uh, yeah. around was really helpful. I think that came across, we've had um, talked to others about uh, being in the thick of things, like for example, in the rugby environment and similar thing comes across that, uh, you know, when, time, when you had a tough day, actually the team around you is really important. Yeah, it, it, they're, they're invaluable because, you know, um, you've got to have that certain level of trust with them, but it gives you a group of people that you can bounce, you know, your uncertainties off. So, you know, um, did I react in the right way? Was that particularly bad? And, and you know, they put your arms around you metaphorically and you just realise, you know, um, next day you recharge, you get in there and you deal with it, knowing that there are people around you who will support you if something went wrong. I think I can hear your dog in the background. Have you got somebody else on the interview this morning? <laughs> yeah, I think he wants to get involved. He should, he should come on. Is it he or is she? Is it he? I think oh. he would come on to be pandemonium. Yeah, no, lovely. So <laughs> tell us about fraud. Fraud is a big step change. Um, and uh, so, uh, and um, this is like uh, in, in the old days before the internet, right? So, or maybe just the start of that, but t tell us about being, being involved in fraud in the city. Uh, it, it was, um, it was very different. I mean, the city uh, specialised in investigating high-value, complex fraud of an international nature. There's very few other forces that do that. Um, I mean, I, I dealt with some fraud investigation in my time in Surrey Police, but you're looking at fairly low-value, um, relatively local offences. So mo moving to the city was a, was a great experience, uh, and I moved there. Um, predominantly to get some fraud experience, investigate fraud and actually do some of those things that you think about when you want to join the police, you know, pitting your wits against um, intelligent, sophisticated criminals, um, mm -hmm. which are you and far between, to be honest with you, in day-to-day -day policing. Um, yeah. and, and it was, it, it just struck me as something to do next after working in Surrey for uh, for eight years. and and. I was fortuitous actually because I moved in 1990. Fortuitous in a in a professional sense. I transferred to the city in 1990. Um, fraud investigation was a specialist area for the City of London. In 1991, there was the first of two large IRA bombs in the city. You know, St Mary Axe, um, sadly, which a number of people were killed. But that and a second bomb a year and a half later in Bishopsgate propelled the city into looking into how they dealt with security and actually kept the square mile safe. And through that, the City of London developed, you know, expertise in security in yeah. addition to fraud investigation. Um, yeah. And that was fortuitous to be able to get involved in actually some of the policy work and operational work, um, which led to creating measures of actually recording, you know, uh, offenders who came into the city. So if we go back to the time of the um, um, Irish terrorism conflict, you had people who brought in large improvised devices, left it somewhere and disappeared. They did not want to be recognized. And the challenge was, how do you capture those images so you can then carry out investigations to try and find those people, which is very different from today. So developing that technology was great. But going back to fraud, um, I was fortunate to lead a fraud investigation team of some really experienced officers. And, and, and the modus operandi of, of these large fraud offences was fairly straightforward. You know, someone will come along with a, 
with a fictitious document claiming they owned a large quantity of you know valuable reserves and they want to deposit with a bank and have a receipt which the bank will give and say they've deposited a financial instrument and they will then try and use that to defraud a large company or a wealthy individual the real challenge was tracing the money you know yeah. tracing the money very quickly because they say these things are international and trying to get hold of it and stop it before it disappeared into an account where you couldn't get hold of it and that was that was incredibly exciting because you're working with different um criminal investigation agencies around the world you're working yeah. with accountants in large companies and you're building a lot of trust with these companies to actually give you access to some of their banking systems so you can actually prevent the money disappearing around the world that was amazing interesting it sounds like a really good uh intellectual challenge and pitting yourself against uh you know uh, this kind of activity and then also um working working across different bits the technical community needed yeah. um maybe a good kind of grounding for for um for, for what happened uh, later so I, and I remember the bombs I was um you know we were young and living uh, in the south of the city at the time and um, coming in during both of those um, and then I remember when the um, Tottenham riots happened the riots we were I think away on holiday when when um, this went up and it uh, spread around everywhere so this the background to this is to do with Mark Duggan isn't it yes it is the uh, the, the shooting of Mark Duggan um, following a, uh, a, a police surveillance operation. Um, and, and, I, and I think, I mean, this is, is well-written documentation about the riots and, and you know, different explanations of the causes of it. But um, I think part of, part of the reason why the shooting of Mark uh, led, to, um, uh, led to the riots was you've got certain sites in London which are, have been troublesome in terms of police community relations in the past so you got Tottenham you got Brixton um, and then you got places around the country which have similar historical experiences so Mosside in Manchester St Paul's in Bristol Toxteth in Liverpool so when Mark was shot in Tottenham and if it had happened in any one of these you know historically problematic sites the tensions are always greater um, yeah. But I guess the thing was, it wasn't the shooting itself that led to the riots. You know, a couple of days between the shooting and the riots starting on the Saturday, there were a number of incidents which led to misunderstanding between police and the Independent Police Complaints Commission, police and Mark's family um, and, and the dialogue, which just, like I said, those misunderstandings led to the point that people got frustrated, they lost trust in the police, and they just felt they didn't have any control in terms of what was going on to try and get a, an understanding. Um, and on that Saturday evening, you know, the first person decided they were going to throw a brick at a police car, others joined, and the rest is, is history as we know about. So, had to deal with those misunderstandings, maybe we would not have got to the position where we had the riots. So then it became your gig to um, pick up the community after that. And um, from just um, you know uh, learning a little bit about this, um, you know, in the end, uh, you know, there was a there was a um, um, you know investigation, a case taken against the police, but it, it was found ultimately to be a lawful shooting. But there were lots of question marks, I think. 
But during that, I think there was a worry, wasn't there, that during that whole phase that it would all kick off again uh, at the point of the um, uh, the end of the case. But yeah. you, know, you then took over. And so this is the thing I'm really interested in is, that, you know, how did you think about getting your force into the community uh, and what were your key leadership points to prevent a recurrence uh, as things went through? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I need to start by saying I thought it was a great privilege to be uh, to be given the opportunity to lead that part of London um, after such a, um, a difficult time and a challenging time. Um, and I'd been at uh, Bexley um, at the time uh, of the riots. I was there as a borough commander and I was expecting to be there for uh, three years. And, 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 and I guess I must have led the people in Bexley in a way that gave the senior officers, senior managers trust that I could not only lead the people in, in Haringey professionally to carry out policing, but also had the ability to, to, to rebuild the bridge between the police and the community and, and get to some point of rebuilding the trust. So it was, um, it was like I say, it was a privilege, but it was hugely challenging because, you know, walks in there um, realising that the family were really angry, as you would expect. Uh, sections of the community were really, really angry because they felt this was just another example of the police behaving without accountability. Um, so it wasn't only just rebuilding the bridge between the police and sections of the community, rebuilding trust in the professionalism and fairness of the police, but also doing the stuff that everyday folks wanted wanted us to do: prevent yeah. crime, reduce crime, and keep them safe. So I, I felt very early on that the things that were our strength was to do policing in a fair way that yeah. people recognize so whether it's your bike that was stolen or your house was broken into or you know you're a victim of an assault we were going to be there we we're going to investigate it thoroughly without fear or favor um, yeah. and that was a that was a strength that we brought and that was my strategy uh, and that required me convincing my officers that that was our forte but right. also recognizing those are the things when not done particularly well in the past they've created the tension between the police and certain sections of the community. You know, I talked right. about search, people complaining that the police carry out unfairly. Yeah, so yeah. The so they've got a concept of what they, uh, they've got a really strong concept of what you're there for. Um, and I guess trust, trust is built in explaining what you can do and then doing it, right? So it's, I guess it's very basic, but quite difficult to get that out across the whole community. Absolutely. And, and to get that out consistently. So the yeah, type of yeah. thing that, that I, I did to, 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 to try and explain as simply as I could, at the time, the, the measure of performance of the boroughs and the Met in general was um, a basket of indicators. Uh, so you had things like reduction of burglary and, and detection of burglary, reduction of robbery, detection of robbery, motor vehicle theft, confidence and satisfaction. So you got measured across these 10 activities. Mm -hmm. um, and my strategy was we will actually have a conversation at all level from my level with the chief exec and the leader and, and the local MPs where I would explain to them where we were mm -hmm. in relation to other boroughs, mm -hmm. how we're doing in terms of detection and reduction. Really difficult conversations at times, particularly in areas when you weren't doing well. Yeah. But, the, but the intention was, for example, we're not doing well in terms of theft of motor vehicle, but these are our plans to improve it. But we're, also, but we're doing particularly well in the reduction detection of 
robbery and burglary. So it required a lot of trust. It required yeah. a lot of openness and a bit of exposure. So I yes. did that at my level, but I also insisted that my sergeants who were working at the ward levels, so having ward meetings, had those conversations, you know, but made it specific to their wards. And, and in that sense, what I was trying to do is to say to them and the public, this is what we're here to do. If we talk about policing and how we're contributing to policing and making people safe, then we earn the right to do all the other things like community engagement, you know, working in schools, going to fates, because we're doing the things that people want us to do. And if yeah. we weren't doing that, then we don't deserve and we won't earn the right to do all these other things like community engagement, going in schools, because yeah. those things can be done at other organisations. Sounds very straightforward, but it, it required a great deal of trust and it required persistence to say yeah. we will continue with the same message, good and bad, but talk about how we're going to improve for the things we're not doing so well. I think some of the simplest things uh, on paper in leadership are the hardest to achieve, especially across a big group uh, where you're trying to achieve openness and you're trying to connect with people rather than see it as a sort of an analytical situation. You realise it's about people and it's about building openness. And that requires a good, consistent building of relationships and um, people trusting that you're telling them the truth and that you'll follow up. So I think this kind of point about getting the basics right comes through from you know, lots of our interviews with leaders and, and people really struggle with it because you need to coordinate across a big team and everyone needs to be getting the basics right as a team and that's the hard bit. Yes. Um, and as you say, it's like a repeat, you know, it, it has to build up in people's minds as a trustworthy um, uh, connection. I thought it was really interesting. You then talked about getting your senior people out into the community meetings in all sorts of different forums. So to create this sense of trust by just communicating and telling people what you were doing and where you were at, um, which I think then opened up the channel so you could start to police with the community and get intelligence flowing back into your uh, your team. I think that's right. Absolutely right. Yeah. And, 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 and two things in that in that sense. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I've, I was really um, strong about was that officers in schools yeah. uh, are not necessarily to get intelligence, but to create a consistency um, yeah. and create that trust and create that conduit back to um, the wider organization, the borough, but also give young people the sense that you know that one officer has got access to provide other officers when things weren't particularly working um, yes. so you know I go back to the policing thing but I also go back to the trust building and the you know the consistency um, and the other thing was is as you were saying you know because you have to keep repeating it you have to be consistent you know yeah. everybody has to be saying very similar things so yeah. it wasn't much point in me talking about the performance measure if I had officers working at ward panels are going to be talking about, you know, um, some of fates and the rest of it. You know, we had to be consistent in terms of as an organisation, this is what we're here to do. This is what we have to offer. This is how well we're doing it. And this is where we need you to work with us to help us to actually improve. Um, yeah. and, and almost turned it from being an an agency of enforcement to an agency of service exactly. um, which, yeah, yeah, is, yeah. which is exactly what we are and which is exactly when you know um the first commissioners for the metropolitan police laid down the turn principles one of which was saying you know the police officer is a member of the community doing something the expect communities to do 
what he or she gets paid for. So we are a public servant to do those things that the public don't have the time to do, but give us the trust to be able to deal with it. And if we can't do that, then it makes it very, very difficult to be able to actually build that trust, yeah. build that confidence in people um, and actually encourage them to take responsibility where things are difficult. And I guess, in a way, the greatest success in Haringey is when the inquest verdict came in, uh, and which was ex totally unexpected, and I have to say, because we were we were hoping for a, a neutral verdict, prepared for an unlawful killing. Uh, but I think the lawful killing professionally, and from a personal point of view, was the right decision, but it mm -hmm. created a massive amount of tension that we were not would not have been able to deal with alone without being really forceful. And I think yeah. when that verdict came out, the work they've been doing over the last 18 months, then you had influential members of the community who stepped in, took responsibility and worked on behalf and with the police. And I think a real graphic example of that is if people get a chance to watch the BBC documentary on the Met Police, the very first episode of the first series, really illustrates that graphically when you had all the supporters, the crowd, and some agitation from outside Haringey, outside the police station, yeah. and they were just so angry that they were prepared to start another public disturbance, and sections of the community, individuals, took control, convinced you know those people who were really angry that that wasn't the way to go, was not to actually start another public disturbance, and it was hugely helpful, hugely, yeah. hugely helpful. It's an amazing outcome. It's an amazing outcome and uh, a real uh, vindication. Uh, this morning, everyone, I'm interviewing Dr. Victor Elisa um, about his career in policing. We've just been chatting about you know, how he um, worked with the um, Haringey police to engage with the community and build trust and overcome the tensions around Mark Duggan shooting. Um, really interesting stuff. I want to spend a little bit of time uh, just hearing about what you're just, you know, coming up to the hours. So we've only got a couple of minutes and I want to take some questions as well. So. Um, um, people, if you're listening in and you want to ask some questions, there's an area on your GoToWebinar control panel. Feel free to put some questions in and we'll ask them just as we get up to nine o'clock, if you can stay on for a few minutes. But just keen just to hear about where you're at now. So maybe we've got just a couple of minutes on this, Victor, so we've got time for questions. Of course. Um, um, yeah, so, so one of the things that's really um, that's really challenged me and, and, and I'm working with a number of people to try and no, work on solutions on is the rise in knife crime. Uh, so when I was in Southwark back 12 years ago, very, very similar experience in the high level of um, youth violence, killing, injuries and everything else. And it's just really disappointing that a decade later, you know, we're going through the same process and going through the same angst. And some of the work that I've been doing just recently is working with um, organizations around the world and organizations locally to look at some of the models for reducing knife violence and, and you know one of the um, methods talks about regularly is, is the public health model so yes. I've been to Chicago and spoken to uh, the team out there in terms of what they're doing seeing the work that they're doing which looks really encouraging um, speaking to colleagues up in Merseyside um, academics and actually looking at how we can possibly implement some of the models up there um, yeah. speaking to you know um, governmental officials in London and doing similar things and I just think that looking at the results that other agencies other organizations around the world and in other parts of the UK have achieved 
I think there's a real opportunity to get some level of control of the level of violence, reduce that, and then do the greater work in actually changing community perception, changing environment, and actually having a better understanding of the causes. But my view is that we've got to grab hold of the situation, first and foremost, have some level of control, and then really then focus on all the community capacity building and the looking at the causes of, of you know, some of this violence. Um, and that's been usually interesting, still in the field of policing, but it's much broader in actually working with a wider range of agencies to, to look for longer term solutions to this really difficult problem. Really pleased to hear about it. Really pleased to hear you know the range and extent of things that you're involved with uh, to 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 help with that. Uh, it's a very very uh, current uh, challenging issue. I've got some questions and folks, if you want to ask uh, Victor some questions, we'll just um, take a moment after the hour just to just to do that. But just wrapping up this part of the section up to nine o'clock, I just wanted to say thank you very much for um, participating in Strategy Cafe and sharing your leadership experiences, just absolutely brilliant. So the recording of this will be up uh, online shortly uh, on our podcast and on the um, YouTube site. So go and subscribe and you can watch it there. We'll send out a link to the video um, and you can download it on your podcast in SoundCloud or on iTunes and listen listen to the audio track. But thank you very much. And also thank you. I had a couple of comments coming in about thanks, thanks to your dog. Um, who uh, participated fully in the interview today, which I thought was really wonderful. Just really wanting, wanting to get in on, get in on the action. It was great. Um, um, so, uh, so you better, you better give him a, um, you know, special, a special thanks from everybody as well. Whatever that is, some sort of doggy treat. Um, just a few little forthcoming attractions. If you like today's webinar, next time round we've got Richard Burge, who um, has recently taken over as. Um, Chief Executive of the London Chamber of Commerce and Industry and we'll be talking about um, post-Brexit London and business and then coming up Henry Rose Lee who's an award-winning speaker, entrepreneur and author um, and uh, just really inspiring person to listen to, great TED talker. So some fantastic speakers coming up, uh, really exciting and um, uh, then don't forget uh, you can still come along and register. The next Leaders Forum is on the 26th of February um, we're going to be doing some work around um, mediating conflict together with probably one of the world's leading um, conflict resolvers, uh, Suzanne Kingston. Uh, she's a leading light in uh, family conflict resolution, starting out in divorce, but moving into mediation and arbitration and really setting the light for that uh, around the world. So super person to, to work with. And she's going to be bringing us her key insights for resolving conflict in business and we'll do some workshopping around that so should be a really valuable session so come along free for clients there's a charge for non-clients uh, it's a half day session uh, but should be fantastic and then um, we'll be seeing Victor again I'm delighted to say at Meaningful Human Leadership this year so this is our summer conference which is coming up on the 18th of June great and cracking environment in the urban golf in Smithfield Street in Farringdon um, and Victor will be um, on the panel um, and we're talking about difference. So diversity, but taken right down to the level of understanding how we react to difference and why difference is valuable and how to get strength out of our differences um, in a business context and, and you know, drive extra productivity, extra um, um, uh, performance by understanding how we react and getting the best out of the differences that we experience, even inside of ourselves. So that's coming up. Uh, so uh, come and register and come along to the conference and uh, it should be an amazing day like last year. 
So thank you very much. Um, I've got a question uh, for you, if you're okay, just to stay on for a second. Of course. Um, so um, there's a note that Streatham Police Station was closed by um, Boris when he was mayor, um, and uh, an area of over 50,000 people. I don't know if that's right, but the comments come in. Just wondering what you feel about police cuts like that um, when you know we're still dealing with sort of fairly major incidents in central London, you know, in the central area and around, and also the terror attacks. Just, just it must be very tough in police right now. It is, and it has been for the last. Um for the last 10 years um, and, and part of the austerity measures was reduction in budgets to the police and you know we had to make a decision of actually where we're going to actually reduce the funding uh, and the last commissioner was was very clear that he wasn't prepared to cut police numbers yeah. um, so we had to find those savings from other means and part of that saving came from actually selling off police buildings and shutting right. down police buildings. Uh, I'll have to say that money didn't come back to the police, it went to the mayor's office. So those are difficult decisions that we had to make. And unfortunately, some of the consequences of those decisions are being seen now. You know, there's no indication that had the police station been open, then those attacks wouldn't have happened. But clearly, there'd have been police officers there um, providing greater reassurance. There'd be sanctuary for people who felt um at risk or, or frightened um you know having said all that in this particular situation the offender was under surveillance so thankfully the officers could react very very quickly before he hurt any more people and perhaps kill somebody else but it still doesn't take away that our police buildings around london and i'll speak for london not the rest of the country we do need them back you know we do not necessarily all of them but we did need those visible representation of comfort order which police buildings bring because you've got police officers in them who can yeah. actually the communities very quickly it's totemic isn't it and it's symbolic and uh you know i think there's a real power in um you know in uh, identity um in all sorts of different ways so the uniform is powerful but also the building is powerful and it's a sign and a reminder so i think it has an effect on people's minds when they see these things so i think it's right yeah, I agree, and and it's and and they're, and they're hugely practical. Um, and I know some of the conversation is, you know, we do all these surveys about how often people go into police buildings, and 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 as a result, not many people go into it, so that provides justifications for shutting them down. What yeah. is difficult to measure is the level of confidence that it gives to people. You know, yeah, yeah. You know that there's a building there, and you're saying it's iconic, it's totemic. Um, and, and that reassurance you just cannot measure. And because of that, sometimes it's easy to make a decision that, you know, um, to get rid of these buildings will save money. Uh, and I guess one, just one practical um, consequence of the, you know, shutdown of police buildings at the moment, um, and rightly so, you know, the, the Prime Minister has actually pledged to increase 20,000, increase police numbers by 20,000 in London. Mm -hmm. You have to house those officers somewhere. We have to provide lockers for him to actually store in their equipment. We have to provide buildings for him to work from. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. is the most significant practical problem that we're facing at the moment because there are not enough police buildings to provide accommodation for these officers. So yeah. are we going to end up in a position where we're buying more buildings to create police stations? Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? 
it really doesn't make any sense in the long term. You end up just um, spending more money in um, in the long term, unless you're changing for a more efficient environment. I guess question another question following on from that is, um, you know, we hear that the current government, uh, Boris again, is sort of taking more of a direct interest in this. And maybe you can't talk about this, and I don't want to put you under pressure that you can't speak to something. But I guess there's a curiosity out there about uh, about that commitment to um, see a change at street level. I, I think the commitment is genuine, um, but I think the reality is there's a there's a time lag in between recruiting um, new personnel, training them, having them ready and competent to be on the street to make that difference in terms of the number, presence, accessibility uh, to the police service. So you know the, the way the announcements are made is is almost feels like you know um, I snap my fingers. And in a week's time, you'll have an additional 5,000 police officers on our street. Yeah. It's not that it's not that easy. Um, and and I guess what we all hope for is that that pledge will continue, regardless of any additional activities, distractions that might take place that might force politicians to take their eye off the commitment that they've made to recruit more officers. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, I'm going to wrap up. I'm really um, super grateful for you coming on Strategy Capital this morning. I really enjoyed it. And um, thank you very much indeed for your time. Um, and um, really look forward to speaking to you again and look forward to being with you at the Meaningful Human Leadership Conference. But that's it for today. So thank you very much. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you enjoyed it today, please tell other people and get them to subscribe. Uh, we've got some great sessions coming up and it'd be great just to get them out there and have people listening into these wonderful leadership insights from such great people. Thank you very much, Victor, and uh, thanks to your dog, and uh, see, you, see you later. Have a lovely day. Lovely. Thanks very much, Nick. Thank you for your time. Really great. Appreciate it. Okay, bye. Bye.